This is Michael Krasny welcoming you to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Laura Esserman, internationally recognized surgeon and breast cancer oncologist at the University of California Medical School, where she serves as director of the Breast Care Center. She's the author of over 300 peer-reviewed articles, and she has led the iSpy Trials, Athena Breast Health Network, and the Wisdom Study. And she was named in 2016 to Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. In 2018, she was honored by OncLive for Giants of Cancer Care, and in 2019 was awarded the Simon M. Schubert's Cancer Award and Lectureship from the University of Chicago. In 2020, she received the Brinker Award for Scientific Distinction and Clinical Research from the Susan J. Komen Breast Cancer Organization. And we're going to discuss with her a range of topics, including the need to redefine cancer, and the need for personalized patient-centered care, as well as AI in healthcare and other issues related to public policy and their impact on the delivery of clinical care. Your questions and comments are invited, and I welcome Dr. Laura Esserman. Good to be with you. Thanks so much, Michael. So great to be with you again. Yeah, and I thought we would begin by talking about a column of yours that appeared in the August 20th New York Times. It was co-written with the University of Chicago surgeon and uh, urology oncologist, and it brought into focus really the terror that a lot of people have when they hear the C word, um, but it particularly brought it in because there's a lot of low-risk cancer that's called cancer that's just lumped together with high-risk cancer, and as a result, there's a lot of overtreatment, and as a result of overtreatment, there are a lot of consequences. So we need a new word for cancer, maybe? Well, I think that the problem is if if I tell you you have cancer, you're going to think, Oh my God, I'm going to die if I don't, if I can't get a good treatment. And for the things where that's not true, why are we calling them cancer? So, this is again Gleason 3 plus 3 or Gleason 6 prostate cancer or ductal carcinoma in situ. These are not in and of themselves life threatening. I consider DCIS, you know, window for prevention. You are at risk for breast cancer. So what can we do to reduce that risk? But if you call it cancer, which we do, people think they have to go to the OR in two weeks or they, you know, people often wind up getting a unilateral or bilateral mastectomy and they don't have time to think about it. And if I said, oh, this is atypia, this is a risk factor, most people wouldn't be jumping to that. And I, you know, I think everybody is trying to do their best. I think everyone is like, oh, let's fight cancer. Let's really prevent it. This is the opportunity to do it. But I would say, you know, after three decades of taking, you know, 50 to 60,000 of these DCIS lesions out of the population, the invasive cancer rates haven't gone down. That's not what happened in colon cancer when we take out the polyps. And it's not, you know, so you have to say there's something wrong. Either there's this huge you know, explosion of cancer that's being caused, or maybe it's not the right precursor, or maybe we're not thinking about it differently. And, you know, I think part of the problem is that when you have cells that look like cancer, but they're confined to the duct or they're confined in a particular way, we are conditioned to think, oh, that's cancer or, oh, that's life-threatening. But it isn't always. There's such a range of biology from ultra-low risk to high risk. And even among DCIS, there's different kinds. So we have to stop thinking of it as one thing. 
Now, if people could say, oh, do I have the kind of cancer that's okay, it's not going to kill me, or do I have the kind that's going to kill me, fine. But then, you know, we can call it neoplasia. We can call it an idle tumor. We could. There's a lot of things you could call it. And a really good analogy is what happened in cervical cancer. In screening, and, you know, when we, you know, cervical cancer screening has lowered the rates of invasive cervical cancer. So it's a good screening test. But at the beginning... When people found these abnormalities, you know, in the cervix, they would call them, you know, cervical carcinoma in situ. And all these young women were getting hysterectomies. So they changed the name to CIN, cervical intraepithelial neoplasia. Neoplasia doesn't sound, doesn't have the same ring to it, right? And so it really, it stopped that. And I think that that is, again, true. If, if, if you got diagnosed with prostate cancer, what are you going to think? Are you want you, are you going to fight it? Do you want to take it out? That's the first instinct, right? Let's just get it out. We even have we even have cancer when we talk about basal cell, you know, and dermatological types of things. I mean, the word is uh, just scary for a lot of people. It induces terror. It's very scary, and and that's that's the problem. So that's the problem. So I think you have to differentiate, and the public needs to understand. All of these are different, and every cancer, there are many different types of cancer within breast cancer, within lung cancer, within prostate cancer, skin cancer, some skin cancers, and like everyone thinks melanoma is deadly. All melanomas aren't deadly. Some of them are very mild, and you want to be careful because every intervention has consequences. There's no such thing as medical intervention without consequence, and all of this is trying to think about what's the right strategy or what's the smartest strategy. And how can you learn and do something differently? You know, you think about how brave people had to be to be in these active surveillance studies in prostate cancer. But 10 years later, the mortality rates are absolutely the same whether you have surgery or not. You're being watched. So in my book is like, okay, well, then how do we take this window of opportunity and say, okay, let's put a hold on it. Let's find out what you have and whether you've got the type that's going to progress and so what we're doing for ductal carcinoma in situ is we're doing um, a big study, a big national study called recast DCIS. So we're reevaluating the conditions that would make active surveillance suitable for treatment. And what we're doing is starting, so there's, even in DCIS, you've got the kind of hormone-driven tumors, and then you've got the immune-driven tumors, and we have something for those too. But for 80, 90% of these are hormone-driven. So take six months and try one of these endocrine therapies. And can we even start trying some and that are more tolerable and more effective? That's the whole point. And I think it's very exciting because everyone gets to see, how do I respond? And we're using MRI as the catalyst to understand. So we're following carefully what's in the breast. And what we have found, I've been doing this active surveillance study for women who just came and said, well, I've read the literature and I don't want to have surgery. Like, I understand that. And that seems reasonable. We'll follow you. And now we've learned a lot of people don't even have a focal lesion. They don't even have something that I would consider surgical. Those people will do best with some kind of endocrine risk reduction. And then we can really start cutting down the risk of cancer in the population. 
There are, however, a lot of false positives with MRIs immediately comes to my mind. Uh, and you also have yes, but technology advancing you, so quickly now that to some extent you, you have to keep up with the pace of technology in terms of diagnosis, yes. don't you? But you have, to, you have to be smart about how you use it. You know, it, when you get an MRI, especially in this kind of study, we're not going after everything we see. What we want to know is, you know, is the background, does the background of the tissue light up? Because that suggests active cells that are active, and that's a risk factor by itself. And then you can say, can I see something that's a focal lesion? Do I see something light up? And then in three months, a lot of the background should go away. And you can see if nothing is there, then you're good. If there is a focal lesion still, and then by six months it's still there, that has a much higher likelihood of cancer developing. So probably 60-70% of people won't need to have surgery or radiation, and they just need something more appropriate. And we need to also start developing better tools, better better therapies that, that are more tolerable. And, you know, it's we give people who have stage two and three breast cancer six months of therapy first, either chemo or hormone therapy. So it's perfectly safe in this setting. But if you keep doing the same thing you've always done, you will never learn and never change. So I think this is an exciting opportunity to really change the field. And then, you know, of course, who are the people who are resistant and why are they resistant and how should we target that? So that's really how this study is set up. So I'm super excited about it. So it's, it'll be open at about 22 sites in the country. We're opening next week. Well, this sort of uh, dovetails with what you have been all about in terms of your research and what you have stood for and been visionary about, and that's individual patient care and the focus on right. individual patient care. Right. But I think if you don't, you know, and that's sort of where we've moved iSpy to as well. You know, when people are randomized and they feel like they're just going down the track no matter what their response is, people don't like that. They want something that's more tailored to them. And what's really exciting in iSpy is that now we can bring in novel therapies. If someone gets a complete response, you can stop. If it doesn't work as well as you think, you can move on to the next regimen that we think is best for that particular tumor type. And then if that doesn't work, we so we have three shots on goal. And the whole idea is like the whole 10, 12 years of iSpy, we learned to reclassify tumors as immune types, HER2 types, um, you know, DNA repair deficient, things that are, you know, hormone driven, but, you know, where we really need to develop better therapies. That's how you make progress. That's how you make progress. And by treating first, you don't put people at risk, but what you do is you figure out who's responding. I, I mean, I think this works will work for every epithelial cancer, and it's a way to fast track new therapies and try and figure out how to drive progress. And what people... It, it, our goal is to try and get 90% of patients to complete response without standard therapy. You also have a problem, though, with uh, because of the C word, getting people to be part of clinical studies when that word is linked to those studies or protocols? Well, I think the studies that we develop are very patient-centered. You know, they're, you know, that's what I've been, as you say, I've really been trying to make make it so that the studies, whether it's a screening study like WISDOM, the, the 
DCIS study, everyone gets a chance to try to see how things work for them. And they have a better understanding of what they have and how they're responding. Everybody gets a therapy that really is designed for how they're responding to the drug and what their own situation is. And they feel better about the treatments because it feels more appropriate. And even in, you know, when people have cancer, you know, I, the way I say it is like, you you are not going to be disadvantaged. You may actually be advantaged. That's the whole point that we're trying to figure out. But we're watching closely. If we don't like how the response is, we can move on. So the I, this is what I've been working towards is how do you design trials to be very individually tailored and yet still be able to test all of these new drugs and new ideas and new diagnostic tools. And that's what the platform trial is all about, an efficient way to keep testing drugs and diagnostics and improving people's outcomes as you go. How do we make screening better? Well, you make screening better by starting with that basic understanding that all cancers aren't the same. And if all cancers aren't the same, you have to ask, you know, does everyone have the same kind of risk for cancer? And for what type? And of course, it's not the same. And the problem with screening is it's one size fits all. Go out and get a screening mammogram. Of course, there are seven now, at least seven different recommendations or, or guidelines. And I think that reflects the uncertainty in the field. In the United States is the only place that screens women routinely in their 40s. And, you know, We've been running the wisdom study, which is women informed to screen depending on risk. Again, very patient-centered. Anyone who does not have cancer um, can join the study. And the idea is very simple, that we are trying to understand your risk, including your genetic risk. That There's lots of information in the genes that you have been given from your parents and the you know, that's the same thing. You pass those down to your kids. And it's there are nine different genes that are associated with a higher risk of breast cancer. And each of those genes, you know, people have different kinds of cancer. We'll get back to that. But there's also information in lots of other genes. There's at least 300 small variations that by themselves don't mean much. But together, poly, many, genetic gene risk, polygenic risk, can you can really identify a subset of women who are much higher risk and a group that are much lower risk. So the idea is just, you know, just like what we do with colon cancer, you know, if you have Lynch syndrome, you're going to get a colonoscopy every year. Or if you have lots and lots of polyps, you might even have to do it every six months. But otherwise, it's, you know, if you have no polyps, you come back in 10 years. Or if you have you know, if you maybe come back in five years, I mean, no one's screaming, oh my God, I want my colonoscopy every year. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, it's like, but I, I think that people have to, have to be, you know, I, I think this is something why we want to inform the public. I think screening has to start with risk assessment. And if you're going to do risk assessment with, it's a one-time test, and it's actually cheaper now than a mammogram. I think if you're going to do the genetic test, you need to start that early. You might as well do it at 30 because for that 3% of the population that might have one of these, a third of their, their risk is in their 30s. 
And it's not a lot of people that need it. So now, because we don't really know, we'll say, oh, if you have a family history, come and screen all the time. But the more you screen, the more false positives you have. So I think the right thing to do is to take all the factors that we know, plus the things that we are learning and changing, and also start thinking about, are you at risk for a fast-growing cancer or a slow-growing cancer? Because that should dictate the timing of screening and the way we think about prevention. I got to put a plug in here for Dave Berry's essay on colonoscopies because it makes you almost want to have a colonoscopy. It's very funny. I just did an <laughs> event with him, uh, an interview with him, and uh, it's online. There's a PDF One of it online. One of my favorites. I'll have to look it up. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's hilarious. I'm getting some questions. Let me go to a couple of questions. I want to come back and pursue this more, not only what we've been talking about, but some other things uh, Sharon from San Francisco asks, how much does diet play a part in helping reduce your cancer risk or help once you're diagnosed? Question you're often asked, I know, yeah. Oh, all the time. And, you know, it's one of these things is diet's one of those things. It's not like there's an absolute, if you eat well, you'll never get a cancer. And if you eat poorly, you'll definitely get a cancer. It's not that. It's like, it's like being a good driver, right? The better driver you are, the better your chances, but you can't necessarily protect yourself from some crazy driver who's a you know who's intoxicated and you know hits you in the side so that's one of the things and people have to just not blame themselves it's one of the things when when a cell goes haywire that isn't your fault but there are things that we're learning more i i am particularly interested in the microbiome as well you know that's your body is outnumbered by bacteria 10 to 1 and in the gut you have these colonies of bacteria that are codependent and one depends on the next. So eating eating high fiber, I think, is increasingly being seen as something that boosts your immunity and can reduce your cancer risk. We see this, you know, that probably explains the, some of the differential um, rates of cancer across the world. Uh, so fiber is something that we know uh, improves the the kinds of colonies, you know, that 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 live in your gut, that the things that break down fiber and and they get rid of some of the other bacteria that could be, you know, worse for you. Um, and you know, your gut has a lot to do with immunity. What I tell people is that, you know, in general, it turns out all the things that are good to reduce cancer risk are good for your health in general. Eating, you know, um, a diet that's rich in vegetables and and fruits and not you know you know not eating too much meat and 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 having uh you know and and not eating too much sugar and keeping your body mass index you know your weight in a reasonable range and exercising i mean it's good for your mind and you know it's some people you know you can make it a social event parking your car farther away and walking you know, you can build it into your life, but those are things that really do make a difference and are important for everybody. Here's John from Portland. Says, do you see AI helping advances in cancer therapies? And I should mention that uh, there was an article that you did with two others on AI and healthcare, which I found fascinating. So we can open this up yeah. now, although there are a lot of other questions and a lot of things I wanted to pursue with you. But uh, a lot of the article seemed to put emphasis on design for health disparities. Well, that, I think that's right. Part of the problem is you think about where is the data coming from, and the data is better organized where you have people who are 
wealthier or have better access. And you have to be careful that the models that you're using are not necessarily excluding, you know, people of color or people or, you know, in people in lower income areas, or you have to really be thoughtful about it. So one of the things that we know, for example, when we're looking at polygenic risk, um, and we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we start figuring out who's at risk for um, hormone negative or uh, or fast fast growing cancers versus, you know, the slow growing cancers? You know, it turns out that the models, which have largely been developed for European women, don't work that well for African American women. So you need different models, and you need to make sure that you're you're I you know, making sure that you have enough enrollment that your population reflects the population that you're serving, like in the United States, and that you work with people who have specifically like the Sisters Network or the um, Black Women's Network. My uh, my colleague Fumiola Pade is working on finding these SNPs specifically uh, that work for African-American women and you know, there's one for Asians and some for Latino women. And so it is really important. I mean, all of the work, I mean, AI is just a better, is like using a neural net or doing a, it's a, a lot of people have been doing this kind of work for a long time and trying to figure out how to optimize screening, optimize, you know, it may be very helpful for drug development. One of the place that we would be using it is using the information in a mammogram like using the AI there, we've just put in a program project for wisdom where if we can figure out a way to integrate the information from uh, the AI and mammograms with the genetic risk, because again, are they double counting? Are they the same? We're just trying to figure that out. And so we have a big collaboration with Vignesh Narasu and at Kaiser and trying to sort that out, which I think is really exciting. And as soon as we have some confidence, then we'll be putting that, dropping that into the wisdom models. We keep, as we learn, we keep making it better so that we can really improve the way we um, assign people. And, you know, so you're either at low risk or you're high risk. And if you're at high risk for a, fat, for a slow growing cancer, we want the most important thing we can do is get some prevention and do it early because that continues if you take it for five years like and now you can take baby tam you know five milligrams remember we had in that athena uh um program we did together people say tamoxifen it sounds toxic right but now you can give a dose that's one quarter of the dose baby tam and like if you take it in your 30s you know it'll continue to work and doubles the effect so you know, it shouldn't just be screening. We should be saying screening and what can we do to reduce risk? And now with that DCIS study, we're testing three new drugs, including even low doses of testosterone, you know, which are very suppressive to, to estrogen in the breast. So, you know, there are lots of good ideas that can help us get there, but we have to aspire to better not just doing the same old thing. Well, you're briefing me on what happened post, because uh, I was involved a little bit in the Athena Project. You've got all that data, you've got all that data, excuse me. Right. Extraordinary data, and now AI can be applied to it in ways that are right. pretty, pretty exciting, yeah. Very, very exciting, and, and, you know, that, and that's the whole idea, but you want to be careful and make sure that you understand, okay, if I make this change, what's the impact to the population? You know, the American College of Radi Radiology said, oh, every woman with 
um, dense breast should get an MRI every year. Well, that's 50% of the population. And in the 40s, it's even higher. So that would mean the aggregate cost of screening in this country would be, you know, upwards of 30, 40 billion dollars with a B. You know, that's crazy. So what you need to do is figure out who need, and you don't want to have average risk people getting MRIs because there's a lot of false positives. So that's why we need rational ways to think about this. More for the people who need it, less for the people that don't. And also thinking really that you have to screen differently if you, if you are at risk for a fast-growing cancer than a slow-growing cancer. And your prevention strategies will be different. This also brings up a conversation I had recently, and I've thought about this often, that maybe we have to also come to grips with, this gets back to, I know, some work that you did with Jackie Spear, uh, congresswoman here in the Northern California area, and uh, I was involved in a very small way in that as well, but healthcare, reproductive uh, rights for women and, and abortion and all that that's having as a way of an impact now on public health. Uh, I mean, it has to be reckoned with, and reckoning well, with it is is very sobering. Well, I feel very strongly about this. I think you know, reprodu- reproductive care is part of healthcare, and there is no way that any legislator knows all of the complexities and intricacies that are involved in medical care or. And I and I think what's happening is really terrible. I, I am actually boycotting meetings in states that criminalize abortion. I think it's wrong for women. I think it is bad for, uh, I mean, it just exacerbates inequities. It, you know, you, this means if someone is bleeding after a miscarriage, they can't get mefepristone or they can't come in. If someone ruptures their membranes at 17 weeks, you know, Nobody is getting late-term abortions unless something is wrong, wrong with the baby or wrong with the mother and really sick. I, I don't even know where this comes from, and nobody wants to do that. And, you know, you this, this is, you know, it's not that you're giving free license for people to do it, but you're allowing people to have those conversations about the risks and benefits. You know, that what's happening now is, you know, if someone gets, if you wait till someone's super septic, they, they can die. They might have to have a hysterectomy and lose their ability to have children in the future. I mean, this is absolutely crazy. Um, I, I feel extremely strongly about this. You know, women need to have control of their reproductive health. They're the ones that bear it, bear the risk, and it's their decision. And another important thing is, you know, the rates of maternal mortality from 4.5 per 100,000 in California to close to 60 in Louisiana. And you know, there's a 14, 15 fold risk in the chance of dying in childbirth. So that speaks to me as saying that's incredibly inequitable. And, you know, that's why it shouldn't be a state to state thing. There needs to be a standard of care that everyone should be able to access. And there's a huge disparity and women who, I think the maternal mortality rates for African-American women are four times higher than for white women. You know, you know, if something's wrong, you have to make a decision. That's their decision. And, you know, I think, I think all physicians, I, you know, I'm a woman's health care provider. If someone gets cancer and finds out they're pregnant or during their cancer treatment finds out that they're pregnant, it should be their right to make a decision and to have the information. Now, some people want to keep their 
child and that's fine, but some people don't. And, you know, it often means you have to delay the therapy that could be the most life-saving, like a Herceptin, if it's a HER2-positive cancer. And you have to think about you have kids at home or you don't have kids at home. These are these are very complex decisions. And it's, and it's not really, I mean, it's ridiculous that someone in the legislature thinks that they should say what it is. People who have absolutely no training and no understanding of all of these situations. I, I, I think it's reprehensible and I think we need to have you know, women's, the Women's Health Protection Act nationally uh, be put through the legislature. Or men who have religious beliefs would supersede any uh, understanding uh, or empathy that could Fine. put... Yeah. The, every, we live in a plurality. If that's what you believe, don't do it. We've got, I, we've got a lot of questions. I want to get to as many as we okay. can. Um, but I wanted to pursue something I started talking about, and that was about a different attitude toward mortality in general that's necessary. Uh, I mean, the Dutch have pretty good way of looking at these things, uh, the results of trying to keep people alive, especially with technologies that we have now, have, well, cost the healthcare system extraordinary number of dollars that can't even be measured. Do we need a different attitude? I mean, people want to keep their loved ones alive. I understand that as long as possible. But we're having technologies now that can keep people alive in kind of quasi or vegetative states. Well, I think everybody... Everybody needs to have this conversation and think about it themselves and really think about what it is that they want and how they want to live when they are feeling good. Everyone should have a living will. I have a living will. And, you know, everybody, just like everyone's born, everybody dies. And you want to think about what kind of death do I want personally? You know, I do not want to be kept alive. I, I don't want any extraordinary measures if I have, you know, an illness that I can't recover from, if, you know, if my brain health is bad, I'm not, you know, I don't want to be living if I'm my cognition is poor. These are things that you can put into your living will should something happen. I think it really helps, you know, nobody lives forever. You want to die well, die with dignity and not necessarily be hooked up. Everyone can think about what that is. Let's just not call it a good death because that makes me recoil a bit. A dignified death I like more than a, a what people death. have been calling a, a good death. A dignified death. death. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the thing is that, that everyone needs to think about that because that time will come for everybody. There's no way around it. You know, it's very helpful to your family when you make your wishes clear. Now, there may be someone who says, you know, I want to live even if I'm a vegetative, in a vegetative state. I don't think most people want that. Uh, but you can make your wishes very clear by getting a living will together and telling your loved ones or whoever has going to watch over you if you get sick, you know, where that living will is and be explicit about it. It's extremely helpful and everybody should do that. Everybody should do that. Sage advice. Uh, we're going to get some advice from you on some other things that are cropping up here in the way of questions. Like I said, there are a lot of them. This one's from Seattle, Washington. comes from Will. Will, thank you for the question. He wants to know, how can healthcare systems and policymakers better support breast cancer patients and survivors? So I think that's a great idea. You know, my I, I feel like it's time in medicine that we make a change. And that change should be that we are all trying to create these learning systems where we are understanding what it is, um, you know, tracking 
what we're doing for each patient, how we're learning, how those outcomes are improving. So I think, you know, taking a longer range and saying it shouldn't be about doing things. It's about what the outcomes are, what the complications are, learning, you know, that after breast cancer, people need support. Uh, you know, once you, when you have chemotherapy, just because it stopped, you're not feeling better the next day. And, you know, there are lots of things that can get in your way, post-mastectomy pain, or if you've had a reduction or you can have pain, you have to tell your physicians about it because you can do an injection locally to relieve that pain if that's what's causing it. But 20, 30% of people have it and are afraid or don't bother to tell their physicians. Um, there is, uh, there are you get neuropathy, you can get, you know, you're, you can be debilitated. It takes a year or so to get your energy back. People need to help women talk about their sexual health and talk about, you know, being able to get back to doing the things they love to do. There's so, I think there is so much work we can do to really um, provide that kind of support. And, you know, I think that in some ways having a comprehensive just thinking about a comprehensive package of services that come with all of that care that then can go on, that we, that we really do have to experiment with a different way of funding what we do. Um, partly now we get paid for doing stuff because the business of medicine is more focused on cost recovery and that's how we do things, which is really not in line with how we want to really drive care and outcomes. So I think we need to think differently about how we can finance a more comprehensive approach where we're tailoring therapy and trying to get the least amount for the best result, and then really paying attention to getting people back on their feet and back into the life that you're trying to save. Well, so much of what you say makes such great sense, but it comes from thinking, as a cliche would have it, out of the box. We have to keep thinking out of that box if we want to move forward and make progress. Yes. I'm going to move forward with some more questions because, like I said, a lot are coming in. This is from Dallas. It's from Susan. Thank you, Susan, for the question. Could you explain the concept of active surveillance in breast cancer management and its potential benefits? Certainly. So let's take the setting of ductal carcinoma in situ where I am championing this. The idea is you are thinking about ductal carcinoma in situ as an opportunity for prevention. So say you have a hormone-driven DCIS, no immune cells, you are, uh, the active surveillance part is that you start with an MRI and we look to see the background and we look to see whether there's a lesion there and you get, you get to try one of a, four different medications. And what we're gonna do is start to learn which of these are best in being able to reduce the background and reduce the lesion if there's a lesion that's present. The great thing is that by about six months, you can predict very well who's got a higher risk sort of in that 50, 60% range of getting an invasive cancer down the road versus someone who has a 10% risk, which is the same risk you would have as if you had surgery and radiation. So you are intervening to reduce risk because you've identified someone as having a, a hormone-driven risk. And if you are sensitive to it and it all goes away, our data suggests that it should work. 
you know, there's another big trial that's just been run, the Comet trial, where people were randomized to either surgery or doing, you know, surveillance or endocrine therapy. And those results should be out soon. But it's what it does, what this one does is it gives everyone that six-month chance. And then at the end of six months, people can make decisions about what they want to do with better information. So you're taking that time to reassess the risk and give people different options. But in active surveillance, you're closely monitored. You're not just thrown off to the winds. And DCIS isn't life-threatening. It's not. That's why we shouldn't call it cancer. You got another name in your quiver <laughs> that you can. Yeah, I call it neoplasia, or call it. We used to call them idle tumors, you know. But I, I think, but the uh, our advocates didn't like that, so I, I would just call it neoplasia, ductal neoplasia. I think that's just a better, less scary word. Makes a lot more sense. And it to makes me. people not feel like, oh my god, I have to do something tomorrow. I'm mm-hmm. gonna a lot of surgeons will say, oh, you have to be in the operating room in two weeks. That's ridiculous. Nobody does. Not even if you have an aggressive stage three cancer. You have time to figure out. It's the most important thing if you have a bad cancer is to take your time, figure out what kind of cancer you have and what is the best treatment for it. Well, as you and say, you time every, to get opinions. Every intervention has consequences. That's right. And, and what you want to do is give yourself the best chance of of getting a good result. Here's Lisa from New York City. Can you talk about the difference between environmentally caused cancer, like smoking or pollution and genetic cancers, or is there a difference? Um, well, I, I think uh, that's a fantastic question. And I think that there's probably an important interaction because you can see someone who smokes all their life doesn't get cancer, and there's someone who never smoked and can get cancer, get lung cancer, and they're driven by different things. Certainly, we know that there are genes that are, I mean, there are cancers that are driven by, um, uh, you know, um, errors in in certain genes like BRCA1, PALB2, BRCA2, et cetera, CHECK2. Um, and depending on the mutation, you're at risk for getting different kinds of cancers. I think there's probably a, a better way to start thinking about environmental risk. In Wisdom 2.0, which we've just launched, we are actually looking and tracking through the zip codes where people have lived, the in, trying to look at the environmental um, exposures and try and understand of this next 50,000 uh, group of women if there is more risk, especially if you have underlying risk, either through polygenic risk or the multiple score, the breast cancer surveillance score, plus, you know, we put all these pieces together. So trying to look at, there's now, we're now trying to look at some of the environmental exposures. And I do think that there is um, certainly in areas, um, there's starting to be some emerging data in, you know, areas where there are food deserts and there's, you know, you know, a lot of, a lot, you know, there's a lot of environmental justice groups have, you know, highlighted that people in low income often wind up living in areas that have, are closer to toxic dumps and things like that. So I I think it's important to be able to look at the risk in light of what your underlying genetic risk is. And that might really help us much more, you know, to understand that it really exacerbates the risk if you already have an underlying risk to begin with. should mention that those toxic waste dumps uh, are often in areas that are populated by minorities or people of color. In fact, environmental Mm -hmm. racism is really something that we haven't really approached in any way that we need to approach, uh, even though it's 
on the radar more than it was, say, just a few years ago. But there's so much more that needs to be done. I've got a question from Rachel in San Rafael who says, San Rafael is at one point had very high breast cancer rates, which have dropped significantly over the last 20 years. What kind of factors can impact regional breast cancer rates? So the big risk in Marin County, so part of it, there's many things that sort of led to that. You know, one was they hadn't updated the population as much. The other is, you know, just thinking about who lives in the county. Um, and, you know, some of that got uh, normalized by doing using the appropriate population uh, population figures in the county. Uh, there was a lot of good work, though, that was done. And there were some things, you know, alcohol absolutely increases people's risk. You know, and there's a, you know, if you're drinking, you know, two, three glasses of wine a night, that's too much. You know, you really want to try and get to no more than three to five glasses a week. Um, but there is, that's, that is for sure a risk factor. It doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get it. And by the way, we're going to use our next wisdom forum talking about alcohol with Walter Willett, because if you're going to drink, make sure you take folate <laughs> to protect yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but we, again, you know, what we want is everyone to join the wisdom study who possibly can. You don't have to get, it doesn't matter where you get your care. We, what we're trying to do is say, come work with us. We're actually trying to, you, we used to randomize to annual screening versus personalized screening. Now you just get to choose whichever you want. And, you know, we're really trying to get a broad network. Anybody can go to wisdomstudy.com and uh, I mean, wisdomstudy.org and just uh, uh, sign up. And be part of it. And uh, if you sign up for the personalized arm, you'll get a little box in the mailbox to spin into so we can do look at your DNA. We ask you a bunch of questions so we can get the other kinds of risk. And if you have a mammogram, you just have to upload the report and you just have to keep in touch with us every six months. And if you're at high risk, we give you special counseling. We give you suggestions. We connect with your primary care provider. So it's, you know, our goal is to reduce the risk of breast cancer as well as find it as early as possible. Uh, so it's super, super important, and it's a, it's a really important opportunity that everyone can participate. We thank Rachel for the question and go to another question, and that's from Ben in Tucson, who asks if you can discuss the concept of treatment toxicity and the efforts to minimize it while maximizing treatment effectiveness. That is a fantastic question. So um, we, in fact, are trying to come up with a blended outcome of you know, complete. So in, in, let me back up. So we're trying to get a blended efficacy and toxicity weighted measure and get the FDA to, to, um, uh, you know, use it. And the way we're trying to do this is to say, look, if there's an antibody drug conjugate or some new drug that works and you, the way you find out about it is if you have a tumor that's bigger than two centimeters, and it's the kind of cancer that you're going to get chemotherapy for or some therapy up front, which you should, because you want to know if it's working for you. Then there is, that's, that's what the ISPY trial is about. Look for trials to participate in, because that's how we learn. But the idea is to try and give the drugs and make the tumor go away by the time you get to surgery. Because if it is, most of you, you hardly have any risk left and you don't have to keep taking more and more treatment. And that's what we, you know, we've shown that if you can get a complete response, it doesn't matter where you start 
or what kind of tumor you have, if you can make the tumor go away or nearly go away, you really have a much, 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 much better outcome. I mean, it's down to like a 5% risk. So that is so exciting. But the idea is, what if you can get there with a non-standard chemotherapy? If you get to a complete response, you can stop. Because we don't think there's evidence that you're going to do better if you get to complete response. And so we're trying to maximize the benefit, but then stop when you get to the goal so that you don't keep adding on toxicity. And then over time, we can look and see, well, if you had much less therapy and got that great result, that's not a non-inferior. That should be a superior result. And we think it's really important to try and find ways to show that a drug that is equally as effective but less toxic should be able to have rapid approval with fewer patients, you know, in a, in a better fashion. So that's why we're trying to work on this combined efficacy and toxicity. I think part of the problem is everyone wants to throw the kitchen sink in and everybody is afraid to leave anything out. But all of those drugs have a cost. I mean, even though the, everyone's excited about the immuno-oncology drugs, but they come at a price too. You can get adrenal insufficiency, you can get diabetes. There's lots of things that come along with it. They're great when you need them. Do what you need and then stop. So we are trying really hard to show that that is true. Is there any way to speed up approval? You talk about rapid approval. Well, yes. So that's that's one of the reasons why I'm the, the combined endpoint allows you, for example, to for a drug that isn't very toxic to maybe get a, a trial approved with 400 patients instead of 1,400 patients. Now, these are new ideas, and we have to work hard with the FDA and, you know, get them to uh, agree to follow this path. But I, you know, it's interesting that, you know, they'll say, oh, I think people only care about efficacy. And I said, well, that's just not my experience. Every patient cares about toxicity. And, you know, if you can safely avoid it, it's so much better. Um, and that's that's part of the drive of how we've designed iSpy 2.2 now is that we really, really are trying to do what people need, not more and not less. And if you have a bad cancer, it's not responding, you can keep going. But if you've got a great result, stop so you don't get more toxicity. That's pretty amazing all that you have accomplished and do accomplish. And I want to talk at least briefly. I haven't briefly. gotten that one done yet, but I'm close. Oh, and... Uh... Don't count me out. I'm persistent. The the promise of uh, (laughs) maybe a cure for breast cancer within five years is not necessarily one that uh, anybody should scoff at where you're concerned. I want to get to one more question, then I want to talk about something you've been doing on the side for a number of years with almost an alternative career. I notice your fingernails like Taylor Swift's are different colors, and that sort of gives me a segue (laughs) to talk about your performance life as well as the singing that you do uh, and the operating Room, But this is a question from Katie in New York. And Katie, thank you for the question. She wants to know, how can innovations in digital health technology and telemedicine improve breast cancer care and access to expertise for patients in remote areas? Um, Also a wonderful question. So one of the nice things about wisdom is that it's something that anyone can do anywhere in the country. Phone, computer, go to a library. So I think that's important. Um, I think that, you know, one of the 
one of the things that we need to be working on in trials is trying to figure out how we can make them, um, how we can sort of bring the trials to where patients are. And, you know, telemedicine really was transformed by the COVID epidemic. I mean, that that was the silver lining. Can I put a plug in for your colleague, Bob Wachter, who we did our first podcast with, who has really made tremendous innovations in terms of writing about telemedicine? Yes. And and so, you know, it means anyone can have a, a call with a, with with an expert. I think one of the blocks is that people after co- when during COVID, it didn't matter where you lived, you could call up and get an opinion. Now, with COVID gone, they've sort of gone back to the state regulations that you have to be in the state to be able to have some of these telemedicine calls. And I think we need to get some national legislation to address that, just like we need national legislation to make clinical trials accessible to anybody like we have in California. So it's important to know that if you want to participate in a trial, it doesn't matter where you get your health care or where you, they have to cover your standard of care costs in a trial. Jackie Spear wrote that bill in 2002 with our help, and we're trying to make this national so it could be any state. These things are very important. And we were talking about AI before. I mean, a lot of the data with COVID-19, because thinking about Bob Wachtel again, mm-hmm. uh, can be moved forward, and we can find a lot of enlightening things using AI with that data, can we not? And it is, and it is really important to make sure that when we do our trials, that we are representing people in urban areas, rural areas, all colors, all races— it's very important, and you have to then make sure your trials are open in the place where the populations are that you want to recruit, led by people who look like the people you want in the trial. Yeah, the rural areas and the remote areas uh, have a real crisis in terms of just having yeah. physicians. They're not there. Well, and, and and that's true, and actually the abortion crisis is making people not want to go to states that don't, that don't allow it. They don't want to practice in a place where there's vigilante medicine and you can be turned in by your colleagues, and you know that's going to really hurt the care in those states. All right. So maybe with a little time left, we can talk about audacity and uh, the fact that when you put people under anesthesia, you sing to them. There is data that shows that music and singing and, uh, well, just anything within harmony can actually help attitude. And attitude is one of those things that may be difficult to measure, but certainly when you go under the knife, you want the best attitude possible. And Professor Dr. Esserman goes to the extent of learning even Beastie Boys type songs. Uh, how to, if that's one of your <laughs> patients' requests, as it was, uh, whatever the request may be, if you don't know the song, you learn it and you sing it with your dulcet voice, which you've used many instances as a performer. I want to talk about that because that's a side that people really should know about you. Let's first talk about what it does to sing to a patient when they actually go under anesthesia, and what do you sing? I think there's several. I This started way back when someone, I was waiting for the anesthesiologist and the patient was really nervous. I could see her blood pressure was really high. And so I just, I had seen Phantom of the Opera and the night before, so I started singing it and I just watched her blood pressure drop and probably mine too, you know, <laughs> and it was, she told me afterwards it was the most wonderful thing. And so I just started. And now what I do is I give, I tell people I will sing them whatever they want. You know, if they want an aria, they have to give me a week. But, you know, if, if it's something else, then they today or two or even that morning. But I'll sing it. I, the idea is to pick something that's meaningful to them. So they're really thinking about that and transported to a different place 
than thinking about where they are in the operating room or looking up and seeing all the scary stuff around. And it's just, I think it's warm and comforting and and very personal. It's It makes it a very intimate moment and it's about caring. And I think that, you know, it's one of those things you can't always change the biology, um, but you can always make a difference in how people experience their illness. And so I think that's one of the ways in which I do it. And I think people spend a lot of time thinking about it, and then they're thinking about that and not their cancer. So I think that's a good thing. Well, you've been doing a lot of singing on stage, too. I alluded to that every year. It seems like every year you put on this performance called Audacity, which includes your singing and a lot of political satire songs and so forth. This is really, this could have been an alternate career, you know. Uh, <laughs> it is, in effect, in some respects. I've been involved in theater all my life. I, I find it I just find it really a lot of fun. I think it's very creative. I love writing the songs and I, you know, it's like writing a puzzle. And when I see things that I are I'm outraged about, you know, I can sing about them and I can rewrite them and I can have the endings come out the way I want them. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's gotten to be a tradition and I have a cast of a buddy people and, a band of like three people, they're fantastic. So it's, it's, it's a lot of fun that things are changing so much. I'll, you know, Definitely going to be doing Audacity 5. Well, when do you go off Broadway, or on Broadway for that matter? <laughs> I, I, I don't think that's going to happen. But, uh, but anyway, but it's, it's super fun, and it's, it's fun to have people come, and it's wonderful working with some great musicians. And there are a lot, you know, that some of them are professional people, and some of them are people in medicine. There are a lot of musicians in medicine, as it turns out. It's a terrific outlet for somebody who does a lot of science and a lot of surgery all the time uh, and research in the scientific realm. I mean, it lets out a whole other side of you. Well, I think it's good for your creativity. Science, you know, is the science and the work that I do is, is you know, requires a lot of creativity. It requires a lot of drive. And, you know, sometimes I think, you know, if I can do this, you know, uh, sometimes like you think, oh, my God, how am I going to put this show on in two months? Can you talk then, about that a bit? Because a lot of people don't realize how creative science can be or needs to be. Science is super creative. And, and as you can see, I'm talking when you said I'm thinking out of the box. It's one thing to think out of the box, but then you got to think about, okay, how am I going to translate that into a trial that can work? You know, how am I going to get this patient-centered care into, uh, into the trial? And, and you got to think about the process at every site. You got to, because we're open at 42 sites around the country. So how do you make sure that if, that it's done the same everywhere? So the creative part is learning then from the data and figuring out, okay, well, how did this drug work and what subset did it work in and did it work in this better? And then thinking, uh, constantly thinking, how do we do it better? How do we make it work? And then how do we actually operationalize it and implement it? It's really, you know, I'm very lucky. I work with a fantastic non not-for-profit organization called Quantum Leap Healthcare Collaborative, which I actually was one of the founders for, but it really is about how do you drive efficiency? How do you drive, how do you support the people to do the creative work and get the operations of the trial to match? And if you want to go fast and get things done faster, you know, get rid of the waste, having a central IRB, getting rid of the time, not writing a new protocol every time you want to put a drug in. So this is a platform trial. You can just drop drugs in and out. You can keep changing it. I, I, I've never stopped the trial. It's now been going for 13 years and we are on our 30 30th drug combination, or now we'll probably be up to 32 in a couple of months. 
you know, adding in, okay, how do we focus on endocrine treatment? How, you know, like everyone engaging a group of 30 people. And of course there is an I Spy song. There's several I Spy songs, but. There's a drug for us. Somewhere a drug for us. <laughs> Talami Rasami Latte Mab Latte Mab waits for us somewhere. Anyway, so there's there's of course. I'm ready for you to cut me open because I love the song. Uh, (laughs) uh, A song for every occasion, and I think creativity makes people think out of the box and be willing to think that things are possible. You have to believe that things are possible, or you will never get them done. You will. If, if you thought about how hard it was to do things, you wouldn't start in the first place. Believe, believe, and accept the belief. Yes, optimism has its own has its own energy and its own weight, and it you know can really make. I believe that in the power of believing that things can happen. I think that really helps make things. Uh, your happen. activism remains very inspiring. I have to ask one other question, though. It's always kind of lurked in my mind and piqued my curiosity. I mentioned in the introduction that in 2016 you were named by Time Magazine, which was then much more read than it is now, as one of the hundred people, uh, most important people in terms of affecting the world and all that. And people who maybe were introduced to Laura Esserman for the first time in this podcast can understand why she would be in those ranks. But what, is, what did it do for you to have that kind of distinction? Or how, did it change your life? That's a pretty extraordinary distinction in itself. Well. One of the hundred most influential people in the world. You know, I mean, that's. Well, I'm not done. I, you know, if I I accomplish the things I want to accomplish, then I'll deserve it. You know, it's not, you know, there was a digital health magazine that named me as like the top innovator in healthcare or whatever. I'm like, I'm not done. I'm like, you know, that's very nice. I'm very flattered. I don't know where they got that from, but, you know, I'll, I'll deserve it when I finished all the things I want to do, but I, I, not yet. Wait, uh, too many things undone. So in some ways, that doesn't necessarily feed your ego. It only feeds your passions to do more. That's right. <laughs> that's nice. That's nice. It's good to be there, but it's not good enough. So. Oh, that's, that's a splendid attitude. We could learn a lot from that, too. <laughs> I'm very focused on the things I'm trying to accomplish. Five years, I right? The way we screen and prevent and treat, that's what I want. And five you know, And years. I want to make it a paradigm for the way we do care. I want to change the way... We we practice medicine, and you know, in you know, the next ten years, you know, just a few little things. Uh, but I, as I keep repeating, five years till the breast five cancer years. cure is in. <laughs> Everybody, join Wisdom WisdomStudy.org. Thank you for all that you do, and let me extend my thanks to all who joined us live for this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, and all who will be hearing it on Apple, Spotify, or GrayMatter.show, where you can also sign up for membership to our growing community of listeners. That's Gray with an E. My thanks to our Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, Jeff, and Colleen, and a special thanks to our special guest, Dr. Professor Laura Asserman. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.